Years ago, at a church I was pastoring, we had an IT contractor who would come in occasionally and work on our computer system and, and work on our Wi-Fi network and make sure it was up and running. I didn't really know him very well. Um, I only said hello to him in passing. But one time, he very urgently wanted to speak to me. And so I asked him to come into my office and we talked. This man was a deeply committed Christian, and years earlier he described kicking a, a, um, an addictive and sinful habit. He had been clean for years, but recently he fell off the wagon, and uh, he was racked with guilt about it. He had prayed for forgiveness, but he wasn't at all confident that God would forgive him. I mean, in the past, when he confessed the sin, sure, God forgave him back then. But now, are you kidding me? After all, he asked, how many times can God forgive me when I keep doing the same old thing? So I did not know a better scripture to share with him than Jesus's words in today's scripture in verse 22. After Peter asked Jesus how many times we need to forgive other people. Is seven times enough? And Jesus said, not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven times. Bible scholars can't agree on what it's supposed to be. But it doesn't matter whether, whether it's 77 times or 490 times. Jesus' point is the same. There should be no limit to the number of times that you forgive other people. Why? Because there's no limit to the number of times that God forgives you. This is the clear teaching of Jesus in verses 21 and 22. I am certain of that. And yet, now we have to deal with one of the most difficult parables in all of the Gospels. What I mean is, Jesus has just clearly said that for Christians, there's no limit to God's forgiveness, but now it seems like maybe there is one limit, and the limit is this. God will continue to forgive our sins only so long as we forgive the sins of others. Is that what Jesus is saying? And if so, do you see the challenge of Jesus' words? Consider verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So the most important question we can ask up front is, will God forgive us if we fail to forgive others? It's an important question, so let's make sure we know the answer and why. First, let's be clear we know what's going on in this parable. The first servant owes the king 10,000 talents. A talent equals about 20 years wages for an average laborer. So today, let's say that a typical laborer makes $30,000 a year. 
So 20 times 30,000 times 10,000 equals $6 billion. That's an estimate. Some scholars say it, it's trillions of dollars. I mean, we don't, we don't know for sure. It's hard to calculate. But Bible scholars speculate that given this sum of money, this servant, he wasn't you know, working on the kitchen staff. This servant was likely ruling over one of the provinces of the kingdom and that the money he squandered was actually tax money. Regardless, as one scholar said, the amount may as well have been zillions of dollars. When the disciples heard, you know, 10,000 talents, they were thinking zillions because it was so far out of reach. And, and it meant that there was simply no way that this servant could ever hope to repay this debt. And yet the king took pity on him. He forgave him his debt. Then this newly forgiven servant turns around and goes to one of his fellow servants who owes him a very small amount of money, maybe a couple hundred bucks, nothing in comparison to what he owed the king. And even though the second servant falls on his knees and begs for mercy, promises to repay, just like the first servant, the first servant will have nothing to do with it. He calls the police. The police come and throw this man into debtor's prison. Some other servants of the king see all this transpire, and they go and tell the king. And that's when the king revokes the forgiveness that he originally offered to the first servant, saying in verse 33, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. Well, yes, he should have, but why didn't he? And this gets to the heart of the parable, I think. The reason is hinted at in verse 26, when the first servant begged the king for mercy. And he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I will pay you everything? Really? Is he certain of that? See, it would have been helpful at this point before forgiving the man if the king had said something like this. You don't get it. You can't begin to pay for everything. You have so badly and irreversibly mismanaged and squandered my money through sheer incompetence, not to mention graft and corruption, you have so badly placed my kingdom at risk that there is no way you could ever hope to repay this debt. Do you understand what you've done to me? Do you see how much harm you've caused? Do you see how utterly hopeless your situation is? The fact that you're telling me that you can pay everything that you owe me shows me that you don't understand exactly how much you owe. The parable ends up making a, a similar point that Jesus makes in real life in Luke chapter 7. There's a prominent, well-respected Pharisee 
named Simon, and he invites Jesus to a dinner party in Jesus's honor. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this today, but back in the first century, when you hosted a dinner party, you kept all the doors of your house open. The public was free to come and go and sort of see what was going on. And one of the people who came into the party was a woman who was known to be a prostitute. And she falls at Jesus's feet. She kisses his feet. She anoints them with ointment and with her own tears. She is crying tears of joy because she has, she has, uh, she's been forgiven her sins. And while all this is going on, Simon the Pharisee is thinking, if this man, Jesus, were really a prophet, he would know exactly the kind of woman uh, this, this woman is, and he would not let this take place. But Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. Simon is thinking, this woman is a terrible sinner. I'm not like her. She doesn't deserve to be with Jesus, but I do, because unlike her, I'm righteous. So Jesus tells Simon in so many words, if you knew the kind of person that you are, Simon, you would be treating me the same way this woman is treating me because you would know that you too are a sinner who desperately needs God's grace, who desperately needs my forgiveness. And you would be begging me to forgive your sins just as this woman has found forgiveness in me. Because it doesn't matter here who's a bigger sinner, um, Simon or this former prostitute. Maybe in terms of today's parable, the prostitute owed 15,000 talents and maybe Simon only owed 10,000. The point is, in either case, it was completely beyond the realm of possibility that either of them could repay because of their sin. The difference is the former prostitute knew that she owed the debt. Simon the Pharisee didn't. And unless or until he figured this out, unless or until he figured out that he was a sinner who owed an unpayable debt to God because of his sins, he would be unable to comprehend the gospel, unable to truly love Jesus and, of course, unable to forgive his fellow sinners because, after all, they don't deserve his forgiveness. This is why elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus warns the Pharisees that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of them because the tax collectors and the prostitutes understood that they needed God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. It was the Pharisees, among others, who had a hard time believing this. They thought that the gospel was for other people. It's hardly an exaggeration to say that the first half of the gospel is understanding why you need the gospel in the first place. I shared this illustration last Sunday night at the Unite service, but it bears repeating. If you've heard it before, just stick with me. 
Um, recently, I've been watching videos of an evangelist on the West Coast named Ray Comfort. I'm also reading one of his books. Um, Comfort spends a lot of time doing street evangelism, and he videos his interactions with people as a way of encouraging ordinary Christians to get out there and, and do the same, fulfill the Great Commission, and he's really good at it. Most people he talks to are like the first servant in this parable. They simply don't understand that because of their sins, they owe an unpayable debt to God. So comfort tries to convince them that they do owe this debt. (laughs) Now, he's from New Zealand. He has this wonderful accent, which I'm not going to try to imitate. But he, um, in his interviews, he always begins uh, by asking the person, do you think you're a good person? Inevitably, they say, yes, I'm a good person. And then he says, have you ever told a lie? And they laugh and say, well, of course, I've told too many to count. What do you call someone who tells lies? And they respond, a liar. And he says, right. (laughs) Um, Have you ever stolen anything, even something of small value? And they usually say, well, yes. What do you call someone who steals? A thief. Right. (laughs) And then, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? And sometimes he has to explain what that means, but they inevitably say, well, yeah, I do that a lot. And he says, well, the Bible calls that blasphemy. And then he goes on to talk about lust and how lust, uh, according to Jesus, is adultery in the heart. And he asks about, have they ever looked at pornography or have they ever, have they had sex before marriage? And almost always the people will say, yes. Then Comfort says, now I'm not judging you, but by your own admission, you've just told me that you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming, fornicating adulterer in the heart. So when you stand before God in judgment, are you guilty or not guilty? And they say, guilty. And he says, will you go to heaven or hell? And I'm surprised But most of the time, they're very honest. They're honest enough to say, yeah, I'll go to hell. And uh, then he asks, does that concern you? And they often say, why, yes, it does. And that gives comfort the opportunity to talk about Jesus and his atoning death on the cross. Well, comfort says in one of his books that if we don't first let sinners feel the sting of God's law, to come under the condemnation of God's law, which after all, according to Paul in Romans, is the purpose of the law, ultimately to convict us of our sins, to show us, to prove to us that we need a savior. That's the number one reason we have uh, the Ten Commandments and God's law. But he says that if we don't let sinners feel the sting of the law and understand that they are condemned under the law, then what we'll get instead of authentic converts to the Christian faith, we'll get a bunch of false converts. And I mean, I've 
I see this. I've seen this in my own 16 years of pastoral ministry. Whether someone walks down the aisle to invite Jesus into their hearts as their personal Lord and Savior and pray a sinner's prayer, or whether uh, people stand up in front of the church and uh, during confirmation and, and uh, profess the Christian faith, there will always be some people who are false converts. And gosh, I've seen this so many times. Um, as soon as these young people get a driver's license or graduate high school, go off to college, uh, go off to a career or to the military or leave home, they never come back to church. I mean, except maybe Christmas and Easter or maybe when they're in town visiting their parents. That's the extent of their Christian faith. My question is, are they saved? In my 16 years of pastoral ministry, I've seen this cycle repeat itself so many times. I would be afraid to know, for example, what percentage of young people that I've confirmed are still practicing the Christian faith. What percentage have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because like the first servant, these false converts never knew. No one ever told them just how unpayable their debt to God is because of their sin. And apart from God's grace alone, through the cross of his son Jesus, they will be lost eternally in hell. Friends, I am not taking for granted that just because you're watching this video or listening to the sound of my voice right now, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't, I invite you to hear Jesus's warning in this parable. Don't be like the unforgiving servant. Your sin has racked up a debt before God that only God's son Jesus could ever repay. And he did pay it on the cross. Look to him alone for your salvation and be saved while there's still time. And make no mistake, time is running out for all of us. But for the rest of us, those of us who have already been born again, those of us who were genuinely Christians, let's get back to the question that I asked near the beginning. Will God still forgive us if we fail to forgive others. And I'm talking about those of us who are already Christians. Let's notice how Jesus begins this parable in verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is exactly like a king who does these things. That's not how parables work. This human king that Jesus describes didn't have the power to look into the first servant's heart and see that he failed to grasp the enormity of his misdeeds. If the king could have done that, he would never have forgiven the man his debt in the first place. So this human king made a mistake in forgiving this man his debt. To say the least, God is not like that. 
God, our king, is not like any human king. When he forgives us, he knows exactly what's in our hearts. Therefore, God does not forgive us by mistake, only to discover later that we never understood the gospel, and then God revokes the forgiveness that he gave us earlier. Heaven forbid. My point is, I don't want you to worry needlessly about your salvation because you're struggling to forgive someone who has genuinely hurt you. We can all easily imagine extreme cases where forgiveness is very difficult, and you may have experienced one or more of those extreme cases. I'm not minimizing your pain, but I'm also not sugarcoating the truth of what Jesus says. He says that if you're struggling to forgive, your failure to forgive is a serious sin. So confess that sin to God and do so believing, as Scripture says, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you recognize that you have a problem forgiving after all, well, you're already not like the unforgiving servant. He was oblivious to the problem. But as you pray, pray that by the power of the Spirit within you, God will give you the desire to forgive. Just start there. I want the desire to forgive these people who've hurt me. One preacher said, you may not want to forgive someone, but you should at least want to want to forgive them. Because make no mistake, there are natural consequences for us Christians when we fail to forgive. I shared this with April earlier this week, but God showed me something recently, which I don't mind sharing with you because I think it might help you, even though it makes me look like a bad Christian and a bad pastor. I'm okay with that if it helps you. But, but here it goes. Um, there are people on Twitter whose accounts I check regularly because I want to see how well or how poorly they're doing right now. These people are my enemies. Now, we all have enemies. There's nothing wrong with having enemies. The Bible says that we have enemies. So let's just call a spade a spade. I have enemies. And I would be embarrassed for my enemies to know how often I look them up on social media. But I check their Twitter accounts because I hope that they're doing poorly. I hope that they're having a bad day. It makes me feel good when something is going wrong in their lives. Why is that? Because they, because they hurt me. I mean, they genuinely hurt me, and I want them to hurt too. I enjoy their pain because I haven't forgiven them. And that's a deadly, serious sin. So I asked April for her advice. Do I need to get off Twitter? <laughs> and she said, not necessarily. But do this. Every time you go to their accounts, say a prayer for them. 
because you can't pray for an enemy for very long before you start wanting to forgive them. Pray for your enemies. I think Jesus said something about that. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, there's hope for all of us. Don't let yourself be discouraged in this process of forgiveness. Pray that God would give you a change of heart towards your enemies and pray for your enemies. So pray for both the change of heart necessary to forgive and pray for your enemies. Pray for their well-being until you find it within yourself to forgive. Um, One of my favorite preachers is a Presbyterian pastor named Steve Brown down in Florida. And um, I was watching a video of his recently on forgiveness. And you know what he does? He actually keeps a journal, a separate journal of the names of people whom he needs to forgive because he has a hard time with it too. And so he prays for each one of those people. And he said, and I'm sure this is true, I know from experience it's true, that forgiveness isn't usually a one-time thing. It's a process. You have to keep doing it. So he continues to pray for them. (laughs) There is hope. Um, There's hope. There might even be hope in this very parable. Hope for the unforgiving servant. Even as he's handed over to the jailers, which I don't know why the ESV translates it jailers. The Greek is torturers. (laughs) Um, But I would say that even as he's handed over to these torturers in verse 34, there is a glimmer of hope. Well, Pastor John MacArthur thinks so. He interprets verse 34 not as final condemnation for this man, but as discipline. He writes, The original debt was unpayable, and the man was still without resources, so it seems unlikely that the servant was saddled once again with the same debt he had already been forgiven. Rather, what he now owed his master would be exacted in chastening by his master until he was willing to forgive others until he was willing to forgive. God may be chastening you or disciplining you right now, by which I mean he's allowing you to experience the continual pain of your past hurts, your past wounds, your past injuries, which continue to hurt you because you're holding on to unforgiveness because you're holding on to it. And God is letting you feel that pain because he's trying to get your attention. And what God is saying to you through that pain is, I want to heal you. I want to heal you of this pain. I'm not denying that it's real. I'm not denying that you were badly hurt but I need to heal you. And healing begins with forgiveness. Ask me for the power to enable you to forgive. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live in-person worship every week and we also have online worship. Please see toccoafirstumc.org for more information.